This is the Diet of Brussels. What about uh, that second referendum? Um, I think before I start on that question, uh, I think we'll observe that I'm avoiding the question of what's going to happen in Parliament. And uh, the simple answer is that I don't really have a clue. Um, it's not something that I think I can usefully say anything about at this stage. So I'm sure once we get to the meaningful votes uh, on the 11th of December, I'll have something to say. But right now, uh, let's just assume that uh, everyone's making it up as they go along. But that's not what we're talking about today. Instead, we're talking about a second referendum. And this is an issue which has really come through uh, in a very strong way in recent months. So I want to think a little bit about the uh, the why, uh, the the what, uh, and the, the how uh, of this, because those strike me as uh, the key questions uh, in all of this. Um, and just to kind of give a bit of a, a background, there have always been, since uh, the 2016 referendum, calls for another vote of some kind. And typically they have been people who feel that they were lied to, that there were irregularities, that the whole uh, thing was a farce or we didn't know enough or we didn't know uh, then what we know now. And so there has been always a background noise of having uh, another attempt to try and settle this by popular vote. So those things have not been very successful, largely because... Uh, uh, those who don't want to have it have said, well, we had a, a, a vote, we had a decision, you might not like it, but that's the way uh, the proverbial cookie crumbles. The thing that has changed here, I think, is that there was a degree of reframing the debate. Uh, and again, you know, in terms, I've called it a second referendum, uh, already that's a normative term, just as is uh, a people's vote. That uh, That's really the kind of the, the heart of uh, uh, the logic, that, you know, the people must be heard, uh, was very successful in getting the first referendum, uh, and so why shouldn't it be successful uh, a second time round? But the, the specific argument is that uh, with the move towards the conclusion of the withdrawal agreement, and the political declaration, we now have a much clearer sense of what leaving actually entails. And as such, there has been a developing discourse uh, which says uh, we now need to uh, make sure that that form of leaving has the, the legitimacy, as much legitimacy as it, it can, and that needs an explicit approval by the population. Now, uh, that's really a function of the continuing division uh, in uh, public debate and political debate about what we should do. And, you know, clearly the unhappiness about uh, checkers and, and then about the withdrawal agreement is, is very palpable. So, you know, this might be a way to settle that. And that is a key part of the logic. The thing that, that has been difficult, though, is that you also see those who want to reverse Brexit, uh, who wants to stop the process, uh, jumping on this particular uh, bandwagon. And so we have a fairly basic confusion between uh, whether we should be leaving with or without this deal, which would be the narrow interpretation of getting people's approval, 
and the other narrative of saying we should also again just confirm that we still want to leave at all uh, which is a slightly no it's not even slightly it's a very different question the upshot of this has been that whilst there has been uh, a lot of uh, progress towards building support for a people's vote and we see uh, substantial movement in public opinion uh, towards doing that I think we have to be a bit careful about the question of the legitimacy of the process because uh, even before we get to what happens in the people's vote uh, or in a referendum uh, or what question is asked or how people campaign or what the outcome is and what that means there is a question about how did we get to decide to have a referendum in the first place now, one of the things here that I think is particularly striking is that you now see the Labour Party saying that maybe they are more open to this than might previously have been imagined. And uh, you can sort of see the logic. Given that we don't know what's going to happen in the, the meaningful vote uh, on the 12th of December, we do, however, have a strong sense that the government is unlikely to win that uh, vote at the first time of asking. Now, uh, Theresa May might go and do some renegotiation. Uh, she's unlikely to get anything of any substantive uh, uh, concessions. Uh, we know that the Conservatives and the DUP haven't got any great interest in uh, allowing uh, a vote of no confidence in the government to succeed. Uh, even if they don't like Theresa May or the withdrawal agreement. So that path is uh, probably closed, which then leaves potentially the option, as John McDonald's been saying yesterday, of the Labour Party swinging behind uh, an, an approval of uh, the withdrawal agreement subject to uh, a second referendum. Now, if that happens, then there probably is enough support in uh, soft Labour rebels, uh, soft Tory rebels, to help get that over the line as an amendment. That wouldn't be by itself enough to make it happen. We, we'd need several things to happen before uh, we actually got to uh, an actual vote. The most obvious Thing is that you'd need to have uh, some legislation in the UK to make that referendum actually happen. Now, if you read the excellent reports from the UCL Constitution Unit, uh, they suggest that you need at least 22 weeks from starting the process to reaching a vote itself, which is you know a bit more than uh, four months, a bit more, yeah, about four months. Uh, we haven't really got, well, we've got four months now, but we won't have four months by the time that this actually becomes an issue. Uh, and some of those four months are taken up with the recess and uh, all the rest. So almost certainly there's not enough time to get the legislation through and a vote held before the 29th of March. And that requires then uh, Parliament to force the government to go and ask for an extension from the EU of Article 50 and for the EU to accept that extension. Now, because that extension requires unanimity of the 27 member states, that gives a degree of power to individual member states who might have things that they want to uh, put on the table, you know, kind of a quid pro quo. So that might be something like, uh, 
getting a commitment to having more talks about the future status of Gibraltar or some accelerated procedure for fisheries access uh, during the transition period, stuff like that. And stuff which might not be that um, pleasant to swallow, but uh, the calculation might be that the, the British really don't have a, a choice in the matter at this stage. Uh, you also need to amend the uh, Withdrawal Act, which says that the day of leaving is the 29th of March, uh, because if you don't, uh, on that day, all of the uh, provisions of that Act uh, kick into effect, uh, the first of which is the repealing of the European Communities Act 1972, which is the entire basis for the legal opera operationalisation of uh, the European treaties. So you've got to do a bunch of stuff. You've got to get primary legislation uh, in place. You've got to amend other bits of primary legislation. You've got to get the agreement of EU partners to get the time uh, that's there. And all of that is true whatever you want to do in a second referendum. The second issue, which makes the 22-week uh, question all the more problematic, is you've got to decide what you're actually asking for. Now, uh, I did a debate uh, the other night with Lord Adonis, uh, where he's uh, very enthusiastic about having a second referendum and about remaining in uh, the EU uh, off the back of that. Um, the question that he suggested that there was uh, to be answered was whether we left on the terms that have been agreed in the withdrawal agreements or whether we should remain. Now, that's uh, an understandable uh, juxtaposition because those are the agreed uh, terms and uh, clearly there is desire to have that remain option on the table. But what it doesn't include is an option of leaving without a deal. And this is perhaps one of the uh, real problems are around a second referendum. What choice do you give people and how do you structure it? Broadly speaking, you've got those three questions or three options. Leaving without a deal, leaving with a deal uh, or not leaving. And you could have more or less any combination of those three, uh, either in pairs or all three together. Um, and you could find somebody who thinks that that's the right choice. Um, the problem is, is that there's no combination that is uh, broadly accepted as the right choice. Um, the problem I think that Theresa May would face is that however she decides to pursue this, and remember this is something that would have to be approved by Parliament, so it would have to get a parliamentary majority, there will be those who say that the questions are rigged to favour a particular outcome. That if you have all three on the, uh, uh, on the ballot paper, you are giving uh, two options that are for leave. So you might be splitting the leave vote, which allows the remain vote to go ahead. Uh, you might uh, find that if you exclude one of the three options, the people who would like that option to take place feel that they are aggrieved uh, and that they're not represented in all of this. And then there's the simple mathematical problem that if you have three options, 
uh, you are much less likely to get the winning option securing a majority of the votes. It might secure a plurality, uh, but not a majority uh, overall. And then given how uh, difficult this debate has been, uh, you could imagine that that would not help matters very much. I think, remember how we've uh, reacted over a 52-48 split uh, last time round. So there are ways around this. I, you know, if you've got three options on the ballot paper, you could do two rounds, or you could have uh, a preferential system uh, that would uh, capture a ranking of, of people's uh, preferences uh, on this. But again, all of these things are choices, and they are political choices. They're not ones that have a clear, rational answer uh, and motivation uh, that we should and must uh, follow. Related to that, we also have the question of the conduct of the campaign. Uh, there have been parliamentary uh, reviews of procedure around the 2016 campaign. There have been some recommendations made. Some of those are in effect, others are not. But still, there are issues around the regulation of social media, the regulation of groups apart from the main uh, organised groups. Uh, there are questions about the role of foreign uh, agents uh, in the negative sense of the word, but also the, uh, the positive sense, uh, who uh, might have a stake in influencing what goes on. Are we happy with how the campaigning would go about the uh, presentation of arguments by the different parties uh, to the campaign, the role of the governments, the issue of PERDA, uh, the capacity for people to know and trust the information that they receive. Now, certainly you would imagine that the second time round, people would have a much better sense of the potential traps and pitfalls that might occur, but uh, one also should assume that it won't be that much different from last time round because not that much has actually changed. Again, still in a referendum, there is a clear incentive to just say what needs to be said to get people to vote for you, regardless of whether it's actually going to happen uh, or not. There isn't, uh, in the current arrangements in the UK, a commitment that those who win have to put in effect an agreed plan. Now, that may be something that might be more possible in uh, the context of a second referendum, because the the three options all have uh, a clear uh, plan and commitment that there is the agreed text uh, around the withdrawal agreement, there is a set of contingency plans around a no-deal outcome, uh, and there is the treaty arrangements that would be in place in event of a Remain deal. But certainly you could imagine that the government might find itself pressured to require each of the options to set out in detail what it is that they would do uh, in the event uh, of winning that vote and that that might help people to feel that actually their choice was going to be followed through uh, and that people had thought about what those choices were and that might reduce some of the gaming. However, uh, under parliamentary sovereignty, there's still no requirement for Parliament to follow any of those commitments, and if it's minded to do something different, 
you literally cannot stop it doing something different uh, in this particular area. So you've got issues around the campaigning. Uh, you're also going to find that there are going to be issues in the substance of the campaign. One of the, the real challenges that those who push this idea in favour of remaining will find is that the document that they're choosing to hang this on is not the Brexit deal. And uh, the Brexit deal, doing air quotes, is only part of Brexit. So as I've said again and again uh, on this podcast, and you guys all know it, uh, this withdrawal agreement is about ending EU membership for the UK. It's not about the future relationship. The political declaration is merely a statement of intent that doesn't tie the hands very firmly of anybody involved. So really what it is, it's about ending and resolving the liabilities of UK membership. So that means sorting out the money, it means sorting out what happens in relation to citizens' rights, it means sorting out backstop arrangements for Ireland, and it means putting in place transition arrangements until we can work out what the future relationship will look like. And that transition re arrangement, remember, is grounded on the UK following all the rules, being bound by every uh, requirement of the treaties, everything with the exception of not having a voice or a vote in decision making. Now, imagine how that looks to somebody who is minded to leave. It's financial costs, it's sovereignty costs, it is uh, cost after cost after cost, it's territorial costs with the backstop. There's nothing in there that is the bright sit sunlit uplands uh, which are merely contained in that promissory note of the political declaration. So campaigners who want to go down the second referendum route will find that they will have an uphill battle to defend uh, the, or not those who want to remain, but those who want to defend the withdrawal agreement will find that it's very hard to do that. Those who want to remain will find that there will be a reflected negativity from that withdrawal agreement, that it will be easy for those who want to leave without a deal to say, look, even when we leave, we still don't get a good deal, and why would we get any better deal on the inside uh, and this is just emblematic of how badly we're treated. And all of that before we even get to the very obvious line of campaigning by those who wish to leave without a deal of, oh look, it's the EU making us vote again. The spineless politicians in London have just caved to pressure from the establishment. They want you to vote again until you get it right. Don't give them the satisfaction. And, you know, that's a fairly effective line. You know, it's uh, not a situation where politicians are held in particularly high regard. Nobody thinks that Westminster has come out well out of all of this. So how do you uh, address that kind of line of attack? And that's something which I think would have to be given careful consideration. But ultimately, again, I think this is one of the reasons why there is real unease about a, a second referendum in uh, Parliament right now. If you assume that you have to 
include a leaving with no deal option, which might well be necessary if you need to get sufficient late, uh, conservative support to make it happen, that then that opens a very wide door to uh, people voting in a way that you might not want them to. And I say that with the thought that there are very few MPs who would like to leave the EU without a deal that they are few and far between. There are far more MPs who are desperately keen not to leave without a deal. They they want other things. They'd either like the deal or another deal or they'd like to not to leave. But they definitely don't want to leave without a deal. So if you uh, give people that opportunity, then you run the risk that they take that, uh, particularly in light of the kind of arguments that I've just outlined, that you know this might just all look like more of the same, not a good arrangement, them telling us what to do, and we should just walk away from it. And certainly I think you know, there's a considerable danger that uh, uh, just in the populist mode, uh, somebody pops up and makes a very impassioned argument about why we are better than this and why this shouldn't happen. All of these things, I think, are going to be floating around in the coming weeks. Uh, whether this actually happens will depend a lot on how the meaningful vote goes. That uh, it might be that uh, the vote is only just lost and so much more tactical uh, activity might be undertaken to win over the necessary handful of people uh, needed to get uh, the withdrawal agreement through. It may be that the kind of people who vote against are not uh, going to be swayed, and so you need to look at whether they are uh, opposition MPs, whether they are people within the government, uh, and do you really have a majority for going down the second referendum kind of route. As I said at the top of the programme, we still don't really know where we are on how that vote will pan out and it's only going to be in the wake of that that we'll have a sense of whether a second referendum uh, or a general election or renegotiation or anything else is uh, a likelihood or indeed just a possibility. So until then I shall leave you uh, and I hopefully will return with some answers just as soon as I've worked out what the questions might be. <laughs>